Hello out there in listening land. We got a real treat for you today, as my guest is Rocco Vasta. If you like what you hear, go check him and Dan out over at Critical Mass. I can tell you genuinely, you will not find a funnier podcast out there. While you're cruising the internet, stop by GutsyMediaPodcast.com and vote for the questions for Season 3 of the show. If we pick your question, you will get a -a one-of-a-kind gift box from yours truly. Also, make sure you share the show. Tell your friends. That's really the best thing you can do for the show is to get the word out there. Follow the social medias. That's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Uh, we are so very thankful to have all of our supporters out there. But without further ado, on with the show. Uh, thanks so much, Rocco. I really appreciate you being here on the show. Hey, I'm glad to be here. And uh, we got a treat in store for you. This is a special episode. So this is really like a big thank you, because usually I have my guests on and they we talk about what they want to talk about, which is whatever movie they pick and why you know they picked that movie, which surprisingly enough, I have a lot of friends who are really into horror films and it makes me it makes me question my friends. Um, but you're on a special Rightfully episode. So. you're on a special episode this is our first ever host pick episode uh where i got to pick the movie and i'm excited about this because i i got some gems man i got some gems in my bag and i don't get to pull them out very often and for you i want to be able to pull it out Uh, i mean yeah (laughs) i'm pretty sure the the judge shouldn't know about this but anyway (laughs) you pulling things out no, uh, I'm excited to be here, man. Um, especially with your movie choice, uh, intrigued me. Um, so I'm I'm excited to be here for it. So I picked 1998's Snake Eyes, starring Nicolas Cage, Gary Sinise, and Carla Gugino. That's have right. You, have you seen this movie prior? So yes, uh, I, it's actually a funny story. I know I told you off air. Um, so my dad, who got me into movies, I like to think of myself as a low-grade cinephile, um, but my dad got me into movies. That, that's his love of movies that got me here, and his M.O. was letting me see movies I was way too young to see. <laughs> and uh, he's also a huge Nicolas Cage fan. Now, I didn't know these existed, but my dad is one of them, and he celebrates Nicolas Cage's entire catalog. If Nick Cage is in it, my dad's either seen it or now he needs to see it tonight. So um, Nick Cage is notorious for being a bit out there. Yes. He's a bit crazy. Yeah. So when you picked this movie, I was like, oh, my God, I saw this movie like when it shortly when it went to VHS from like from the theater and like we rented it like almost immediately. And I I should not have watched that at at my (laughs) age. Um, But I watched it again last night. And uh, just to get, refresh me, because I needed to. It's been so long. And it did not disappoint, man. It didn't. So we're, we're ultimately going to get into it and, and talk about you know, whether or not we like this movie towards the end. Um, but for, for now, I just kind of want to go through it. Be, let me set the stage for everybody. 1998, we don't have DVDs. Nope. Um, it, it is Nicolas Cage, who is starring in this movie, is fresh off of City of Angels and Face Off. So we are at height, Nicholas. Cage. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is peak uh, Cage career. Oh, yeah. Very, very cagey. Very cagey in the world. 
Uh, Gary Sinise, fresh off Apollo 13 and Forrest Gump. So yep. also at a very you know peak for him. Carlo Dugino uh, has done nothing. I mean, she, she, she was in Son-in-Law with... Um, yeah. oh, well, recently, recently she's been in um, the the horror series, both um, the God, The Haunting of Hill House and then season two, The Haunting of Bly Manor. She was in both of those, and she was fantastic in both. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's done great things since then. She was in Watchmen. She's been in Sin City. Sin City is by far my favorite role she's been in. Um, she is, she's an, Oh um, yeah. Um, yeah. She's oh, a great yeah. actress. Um, yes. but at this point in her career, her claim to fame is really doing son-in-law and she was in Michael, uh, the, the, with, uh, John Travolta, but only as a waitress. Oh, God. So this is her like, yeah, <laughs> it's again, peak, peak John Travolta right there too. Yeah. Yeah. So this is really her, her first major film yeah. and she does, she does pretty good. I, I mean, I, I have nothing nothing to say negative about her performance in this film. Not at all. Not at all. But I mean, it's 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 crazy to see any supporting performance next to Nicolas Cage's off the wall, just ridiculous performances. So you're probably the perfect person to ask this because of your Nick Cage background. Yes. Has he become a caricature of himself? Or is this how he's always been, and we, as as the audience, just never really noticed it? I feel like that's such a loaded question. <laughs> um, I think, like, in the recent times, he is embracing his caricature, and we're seeing it, like, now more than ever. And I think that he became the caricature, I don't think he always was in the beginnings of his career. Like, I don't know, face off, he wasn't too crazy. Um, but I mean, geez, dude, seeing him in this, I mean, even even eight millimeter, like that was a very subtle, like very defeated. I mean, that first of all, that movie is crazy. Jesus. But uh, like that wasn't so. But this one, baby, yeah, woo. yeah. Like his arm motions and it's his yelling, yeah, it, it it fits so. Maybe it's just the roles he's taking. He's not taking roles that allow him to really, you know, use this to to his advantage anymore. But so, for me, this film is so is so pivotal because you know when I first joined the military, I got stationed and I'm in my barracks room night one. There's nothing. I have nothing. I have no bed sheets. I have nothing. And I'm like, you know, I'm this is how my life is going to be. I need to I need to invest in something. And immediately night one went to the PX and got a portable DVD player. And I bought two DVDs at night. I bought this movie and the movie Basic with John Travolta. <laughs> and those two movies I have seen probably a combined over 200 times because that was all I had. So I watched them like day in and day out. And I don't know oh if it's, it's, I think, I think it was, you know, that, uh, uh, kidnap victim mentality yeah. where I just, I started hating it and then I just embraced it and loved it. And it's just, we've been inseparable since. Yeah, man. I mean, Hey, uh, I mean, not for nothing, but, uh, snake eyes was, uh, it, it was an enjoyable film altogether. I I loved. Uh, I did actually really like that movie. Is it the greatest movie ever? No, but I mean it was good. So here's 
here's what I want to get into. And uh, yes. so going over some of the stats of the movie, the tagline for the movie is he's got 14,000 eyewitnesses and no one saw a thing. Dun, dun, dun. It is your classic noir film. I am yes. I'm a huge fan of noir. Probably my favorite genre in movies. I love the Sherlock Holmes movies. I love anything that kind of gives me that detective, you know, clue type vibe. Oh, this absolutely. Is, this is R-rated for violence. Um, it comes out August 7th, 1998, as we mentioned before. Approximate runtime is 98 minutes. A very, a very tight hour and a half. I've always said hour and a half to two hours. No less, no more. Perfect. Not four hours? Not uh, some <laughs> some situations a four hour movie can be good, but uh, I had no. to. <laughs> <laughs> so uh the budget for the movie is listed at 73 million. But here's the wow. thing: it's not 73 million. Uh well, actually, I take that back. That was the budget of the movie. The actual cost of the movie was 68 million. The budget or the movie came in four million dollars under budget and wrapped wow. two weeks early. De Palma, and man, he was yes. And that's exactly what I was leading to. Touchstone Pictures and Paramount uh, hired Brian De Palma as the director for the film. For those of you who don't know who Brian De Palma is, he is, in my opinion, arguably the least appreciated, amazing director in Hollywood. Um, let's just go over some of his movie, you know, report cards here. Before you do that, I and I want you to, I'm excited about it. Is I looked it up last night, and I was wowed at how underappreciated this guy is. So yeah, yes, yes. So I can't wait to hear the list. First, I, big I, I movie. Looked, I went over it last night. <laughs> First big movie, 1976, Carrie. Yep. He lays low for a little while. Comes out in 1983 with Scarface. Mm -hmm. Scarface. Yes. Then we got 1987, The Untouchables. 1989, Casualties of War. 1993, Carlito's Way. Mm -hmm. 1996, Mission Impossible. 1998, we hit Snake Eyes. And then from there, I think the, the two biggest ones are Femme Fatale in 2002 and The Black Dahlia in 2006. Uh, I mean, these are some big name movies. Did you see Mission to Mars? Oh, Mission to Mars is on there in 2000. Yeah. I did see it. It's I am. This is why. This is why I have people like you on the podcast. <laughs> I saw that and I was like, I love this movie. Yes, but it, it's so unknown. I'm not going to mention it as part of his filmography. And I'm so happy. It's such a great movie. Such a great movie. Gary Sinise, man, such a great, great movie. I loved that movie. God, that so was Gary, wild. Yeah, that's such a good movie. Gary Sinise, not the first um, choice for the role. It was offered to Will Smith. It was actually written for Will Smith. Will Smith requests $12 million to play the role. And Gary uh, basically says that's ridiculous. Or excuse me, uh, uh, Brian basically says that's ridiculous. They yeah. yank it back from him. They offer it to Al Pacino, who turns it down, and then eventually goes to Gary Sinise, uh, which... I'm actually upset he wasn't the first choice. I think he's great in this movie, and he yeah. plays that very hard, like, militaristic best friend. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I I, I think he was perfect for the role um, converse to Nick Cage. I feel like he was the right level of actor to be there. Um, like, if Pacino was there, I feel like it would be too 
almost too much. You have you have Nick Cage on one side, Pacino on the other side. Like I don't know, it just felt like Sinise's character and who he is and, and where he's at as an actor. I think it didn't. It it lended to the story and it lended to their relationship without their superstardom. You know, kind of overshadowing it. You, I don't know if that makes sense to no, you. No, you're hundred percent right. I think I think uh, Nick Cage has a way of like amplifying and kind of you know, being the loud character yes. in the scene. And you have Gary Sinise, who in a military type role is playing very straight laced. And so let's, let's get into the, the plot a little bit. Cause that'll help explain why Nick Cage's overperformance really does the role justice. Yes. We, we start off and we have this great little opening scene where there's a reporter outside and she gives us the synopsis as to why we're here quickly. And they do it in a great way with the reporter scene. So, yeah. Here's what you got to know. Number one, there's a huge storm going on outside. It's a hurricane. They're not calling it a hurricane yet, but she's calling it a hurricane because it's that bad. Number two, the events of the movie are going to be taking place in this casino slash uh, auditorium during a boxing event. And number three, the Secretary of Defense is in the audience to watch the fight. Boom. There you go. That's what you need to know. Yep. Then we follow Nick Cage as he essentially makes his way to his seat. Yeah, and I love that. That this is this is actually one of the longest uninterrupted scenes in film because we start off with him talking to a buddy of his who's a reporter and they basically talk about gambling and how his buddy wants to put down a bet. Okay, no problem. He takes his buddy's money. He walks through the tunnels a little bit. He walks by one of the boxer's dressing rooms in which you find out him and the boxer used to go to school together, although the boxer doesn't know who the hell he is. He chases down some schmuck, beats him up, takes some money. Luis Guzman, man. Who's great. He's always the background actor in everything. I want to see him in like a starring role. (laughs) Yes, yes. He, uh, He also flashes a badge. So at this point, you find out Nick Cage is not only a cop, but he's, if not crooked, he's definitely slanted. He's a scumbag. He's a scumbag. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, he beats up, uh, uh, what's his face, takes some cash, breaks all his drugs, and then slowly makes his way to the seat uh, after talking on the phone with his wife and his girlfriend. <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> and he does this in between hitting on one of the ring girls. Yep. So yep. he's definitely a, a sleazeball, um, but you find out he got tickets to the event because his buddy, uh, who he's grown up with, is a, in the Navy and is one of the gentlemen on duty tonight to protect the Secretary of Defense. So he's got ringside seats. He's ahead of the entire operation to protect them. Right. So which... he is the main guy, and he decides he decides to bring his uh, schmucky local cop buddy. To the boxing event, yeah, yeah, and and just you, just like you said, what I love is when a film's writing doesn't treat me like I'm stupid, and the way they do that is is inference, right? So first they make him do all these scummy things, and then he flashes the badge. Mm-hmm. We don't even know he's a police officer. We don't even we have no context. In fact, who knows whose badge that even was at that right. point? I mean, you can infer it was his, but again, the it, it didn't come out and tell us this. You know, there was no 
there was no care. Like you had the woman in the front that ex- kind of, that explained the whole movie to us, or at least tell gave us the why we're here, right? Right. And what is really huge about that is the argument about the category of the storm, and that sets the tone for the entire movie going forward. The entire movie. Everything is glazed over with the truth that no one wants or with with the truth is glazed over with a fake story that nobody wants to hear. Right. And we see that play over and over and over again in this movie. But it starts right there when she goes a hurricane. No, we got to shoot that again. Why? Because they're classifying it as a tropical storm. Really? Really? We we've got to change the name of it. Yeah. We don't want people to be afraid to come. Yeah, her, her right. exact line is, I love this town. They even spin the weather. There it is. There Which it is. is. Great. And what, that what, is the catalyst. And what I like about, like like you touched on, what I like about De Palma and what I like about, so kudos to not only Brian De Palma, but David Coop, who also does the screenplay. They, they both teamed up for the screenplay. Mm-hmm. His credits include Jurassic Park, Stir of Echoes, uh, Spider-Man, and Mission Impossible. Oh, All great Echoes. Oh, great movie. Yeah. But, but I, I agree with you 100%. What I like about movies like this is there is a fine line that story writers and directors walk between telling the audience something and allowing the audience to overhear something. And I think the main difference is when you're telling the audience something, you're saying you're too dumb to have, have, have figured this out on your own. So I'm going to, I'm going to put it in bold letters right in front of you. Yes. But, I have a, <laughs> sorry, no, please, please. Go ahead. What I was going to say is what I like about this film is that, you're overhearing these conversations. Yes. You're, you're hearing the reporter talk to the cameraman. You're hearing Nick Cage, you know, talk to the bad guy or to the, you know, his reporter buddy or to his, you know, Navy buddy. You're overhearing the conversation. So you're picking up all the information, but you're doing it through just listening and not being talked to. Yeah, it, it, exactly. I call it the I, I I call it the pod racer syndrome. If and uh, real quick, Star Wars Episode One, they 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 told us that Anakin was the only human being that could do pod racing. They spoon fed the story, just shoved it into your <laughs> like, dude. Let me see him pod race, and let me infer that. Right. And that's what I call those movies. Uh, they're, they're pod racer movies. They're movies that just like ex- like like uh, I hate to say this, but The Dark Knight Rises was a movie like that too. Alfred in one scene pretty much told us everything that Bruce Wayne was feeling without us, him actually having to act it out. Like again, there's movies that do this and snake eyes. It, they, it didn't do this. That opening scene you're talking about lays that groundwork and doesn't treat me like I'm stupid. Exactly. And it's one of the things I love about that. That's, that's one of the things I think is very, um, uh, it's it's very descriptive of yes. noir films. I yes. think a lot of noir films, because they're very detective-y and they know that the particular audience that they're gearing towards are people that want to figure it out on their own. They're not, they don't, they don't do as much talking at you. Yes. Um, and now we're going to get into what I like to call the meat of the movie. This is that center hour of the movie, which I think really is what excels this movie. You were going to witness a five to eight minute segment that is going to take place. This is all the action that you're going to see in the movie is this five to eight minute segment. And then the remainder of this hour, you are going to see that same segment 
from different people's perspectives. And Love that's that. how you're going to be kind of piecing the story together. So De Palma said about this in an interview, and I'm quoting, it's very important when you're telling a story from multiple points of view that you make the story interesting from different perspectives. And if it's just here, we go through the same scene we saw before, you want it to look different. You want it to sound different. There's a lot of sound work I did here. I tried to make things that you couldn't hear from one point of view, but you could hear from another. And that is such an interesting take because he's saying there uh, in, in pretty direct words, I'm not only giving you a different point of view, like literally the person standing on this side versus that side, but because of where they're standing, you're going to see different things. You're going to hear different things. So although you're watching the same scene you've seen already, probably multiple times, yes, you're going to have a whole new set of clues you got to pull out of this. And I, that is... That is something noir films don't do enough of, I think. Yes. And I think up until this time, we didn't see a lot of movies using that point of view camera. Um, you know, nowadays, what well, we have all these found footage movies that are point of view cameras. This is obviously not a found footage film, but what I'm saying is it employs that point of view camera that moves through the eyes of that character and then pans out, which I like. I like that a lot. And but just like he said, and just like you said, I didn't know that, by the way. And I think that that is amazing. And now that it's mentioned because I, I just saw it last night, mm -hmm. I'm actually hearing and real. OK, wow, he really did do that. And that is wild. That is that is attention to detail. Right. Absolutely. There. Absolutely. Um, so what, what you see is uh, Nicolas Cage, huge boxing fan. He's watching the fight and you are watching him watch the fight, which I thought was pretty cool about this part of this part of it is you're not even seeing what's happening in the fight. You can hear the commentators. They're kind of in the background a little bit because there is audio played over them. And you see that obviously the fight is going a certain way. The crowd's starting to get crazy and stirred up. Uh, there seems to be some big hit that just happened because everybody goes nuts all at once. Um, during which time Nicholas Cage's um, phone rings. He answers it. He gets into kind of a weird conversation, which sounds like with his girlfriend or with his wife. And then you hear, oh, excuse me, Gary Sinise's character walks off to go investigate a suspicious person. She is a very attractive female sitting ringside by herself. So that's important. They go yes. walking off. That empty seat now becomes filled by some mysterious female who has a conversation with the Secretary of Defense before the Secretary of Defense takes a bullet to the neck. And it sounds like a very confrontational conversation, but we only hear certain words. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Very well put. So you hear her kind of make comments about he's going to be sorry for something. Yep. And uh, the, the he takes a bullet to the neck. She stands up, takes a bullet to the arm. Nick Cage grabs her out of the way. You hear a couple more shots, and then all hell breaks loose, as you would imagine it does. This woman who was shot gets up, grabs an envelope off the ground, and takes off. So I'm not going to go through every intricate detail, because I really could. Again, I've seen this movie oh, a ton yeah. of times, and it being noir, you know, so many little things um, can, can play out later. But basically what happens is Gary Sinise comes back and attempts to kind of fall on his sword. What was I doing? I was out of place. I shouldn't have left my post, blah, 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 blah. Nick Cage, his uh, colorful best friend, basically says, listen, this is how we're going to spin it. You were doing your job. You went looking at the suspicious person. 
Um, and during that, that kind of following her through the arena, he hears the gunshots and is able to take out the assassin. And, and that's how we're going to spin it. You're the hero. You killed the assassin. And Gary Sinise more or less goes along with this. And at, at this point, the investigation starts. And this is this was really cool. So first thing he wants to do is he wants to go interview the boxer, the one he went to school with. And the reason for that is because apparently this big, you know, knockout thing that was happening in the ring was this boxer who's the heavyweight champion had gotten a big hit to the face, fell down onto the mat and the counting had started. And when the gunshots rang out, he immediately lifted his head and looked around. So Nick Cage wants to go interview him and find out why the hell he was on the mat if he wasn't truly knocked out. Yep. And that's where we get the first little tidbits of information. So one of the things that I thought was pretty funny, again, like I mentioned, I've seen this movie a million times. I happened to be watching this one scene with my son, who is six years old. I did not let him watch the whole movie, just this one scene. He happened to walk in while I was on. Nick Cage says something to the boxer. He says... Um, you know, I looked at the fight tape. It was a fact and punch. A fact and punch. It must be a boxing term. I don't know. Fact and punch. That's what, uh, whatever it means. I don't know. And I'm, as I'm watching this with my six-year-old son, he goes, oh, did he say phantom punch? And after watching this movie 375 times, my six-year-old son heard the correct word. And this whole time I thought fact and punch was a boxing term. And I'm like, apparently I'm going deaf, but I I'm sitting that... here. I'm sitting here going, what is he talking about? Fact <laughs> and punch. And, and even your son just saved it now. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I was, I was befuddled um, with that, but um, That's great. so at this point when he's interviewing uh, the heavyweight champion, how, t- tell me about this interview. Tell me what you thought watching it and, and how you think it played out. I, I mean, I think it was a, a lesson in Nick Cage's craziness, by the way, because he was so outlandish during this interview, just the yelling and the like, like everything. Um, and then what I love, too, is that so in the middle of doing this, this is an important investigation. He's he on the phone promised his son he'd get an autograph. And he's like trying to also get the autograph while also like talking to him <laughs> and interviewing him and then using that as leverage to also make money on the side. Yes. During so, the interview. So he's doing the right thing and the wrong thing at, and the cute thing for his son at literally the same time this is great so what happens is is nick cage's character places a bet on the fight uh, uh, for the heavyweight champion he puts five thousand dollars down um when he talks to the champion in the locker room he mentions how he put ten thousand dollars down yeah and says that he won't go to the athletic commission about him throwing the fight if he pays him back the ten thousand dollars yeah so this is great because this happens several times throughout the movie, but this, this small kind of layered character development where you're getting that, yes, he's a cop. Yes, he's doing an investigation. He's really trying to get the answers he's seeking. But on the same token, you know, if he can, if he can make a dollar for himself, he's going to, you know? Dude, that and $100 I, bill that made its way through the whole absolutely. film. It, it's, it's such a great... The reason why I like this, and I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but when you get to the point in the movie where he's faced with the choice 
you really don't know what he's going to do because this character has been walking the line of good and bad throughout the whole film that you're like, does he have a line he won't cross? You know, will he be the good guy or the bad guy? Yeah. And honestly, like when we get to that part, I definitely, that, that part is important on so many levels. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not sure we're there yet in the, in the movie. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. So he talks to the boxer and the boxer basically says, somebody came to me, you know, I, I owe some money to some, some really bad people. Somebody came to me and basically told me they'd pay me a ton of money. They'd settle all my debts if I threw the fight. And on top of throwing the fight, if I lost the title to an underdog, I'd get a rematch and I'd get my title back. So it wasn't a big deal. Hey, come take a seat at the campfire. You're not the only one who joins. I've got friends that come over sometimes, too. We talk about a ton of interesting things from geek culture. Then we cover some conspiracies or philosophical thoughts or monsters. You know, we talked about Bigfoot in one episode. It's a lot of fun, so come join me at the campfire chats. A DFAT entertainment podcast hosted on Spotify and other fine places you find podcasts. But he never knew that there was going to be any sort of assassination attempt or anything like that. And now that it's happened, he's like, you know, losing his mind and he's nervous and he's scared. And uh, he tells Nick Cage that there was a couple people involved. There was the redhead female who is the same female that was sitting courtside. There was also a drunk guy in the audience who was going to mm-hmm. yell a certain phrase when he wanted the heavyweight boxer to take the dive. And he yeah. wanted it done in a certain way so that everybody would be out of their seats cheering and going crazy. So this is where Nick Cage then goes back to his buddy, the, the Navy guy, uh, Gary Sinise, and he says, this is a conspiracy. You got the boxer, you got the guy on the radio, you got the female, you got the shooter, and whoever else was on the other side of that radio, it's five people. Five people make a conspiracy. Yeah. And uh, right before that, though, just to kind of end that interview with the boxer, mm-hmm. the another thing that didn't make us feel stupid in the writing where it explains how conflicted this boxer was is one of his first questions was, is that man going to die? Mm-hmm. And to me that that was that very much showed you he was trying to be a good per like he he was genuinely trying to like, man, I really didn't think any of this was going to happen like that right. made me over be- my head. Yes. But not only that, but that also made me believe him that he yeah. didn't know that that was going to happen. I really believe the character. I was like, OK, so he's asking if that guy's going to die and he's very concerned about it. I, I I really believe him when he said that he didn't know that that was going to happen. So the, the, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so that, that to me, that was super important. Then going into the scene you're talking about where he says it's a conspiracy. Yeah. And so the, as the boxer's telling his story, they're doing it through flashbacks. So you're watching, you know, Nick Cage, when he was coming to the boxer's dressing room in the beginning, you're watching that same scene play out, but now from the boxer's point of view. So he's yes. inside the dressing room. He's seeing the commotion. And then you watch the fight, but you're watching it from his point of view. So you're seeing, you know, the other boxer talk trash and some some missed swings and, and so on and so forth. And then you hear the guy yell. He takes the fall. So on. So now Nick Cage knows something's up. Um, he talks to his buddy about the fact that there was a female that was sitting next to him, that he, she threatened the uh, secretary of defense, took a manila envelope about yay big 
and went and disappeared into the stadium. While this is happening, while, while these scenes are playing out, you're watching her both go into the bathroom, get cleaned up from the gunshot. Uh, she steals a shirt so she can replace mm-hmm. her bloody shirt. She, she was wearing a wig, so her dark hair is exposed. She also lost her glasses, so she really yes. can't see jack shit uh, as she's walking around the casino. And they've locked everybody into the casino while they can get everybody's information. And that's kind of where the tagline comes in, because it's from a line that Nick Cage says to the local cops when they show up, mm-hmm. is that the local cop makes a comment about, like, you can't keep everybody locked in these tunnels, uh, meaning the, the exit tunnels. And he says, I, I sure can. Those are 14,000 eyewitnesses. And I can keep them for as long as it takes to get 14,000 names, 14,000 addresses, and 14,000 pictures now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. And that, well, that was, he is the local police. So that was the FBI. I thought they, they were waiting for the FBI to show up. They were going to, oh, I'm sorry, off. not the, no, no, you're right. It's, it wasn't the FBI. Oh, it, it was, was the, the cas- state, the yep. state commission. The gambling. Commission. Yep. Yeah, exactly. You're right. You're right. Yeah. So uh, I'm trying to think. So after he talks to Gary Sinise, the next scene is he is going to go to the casino security and look at some surveillance cameras to see if he can spot. Uh, these two females, the, the redhead and, and the drunk guy, because that's what he's going to comb the casino for. In the meantime, Gary Sinise meets up with the redhead and the drunk guy. And yep. this is where you find out he is involved. You're not sure to what extent, um, but he basically tells these two that a local cop has made them, and therefore he's got to do something he doesn't want to do. And he, he basically executes the both of them. So he's yep. tying up loose ends at this point. And at that point, that's when you realize where he's at as a character. Once he's murdering his own conspirators, there is no flexibility with him. The mission is the only thing that's on his mind. And and many people are whoever whoever's there is expendable at this point to right. achieve the mission. And this this is important, I think, because I this really is a a a building block. This is going to lead up to the point to where Gary Sinise and Nick Cage are they good friends that are going to you know go through this to the end, or are they on different levels? And I yes. think this kind of leaves this is the start of that, the, the start of the divergent um, paths that they're on. So Gary Sinise now needs to go find this chick who was shot and he starts combing the casino for her. In the meantime, as Nick Cage is checking surveillance cameras, he comes across this chick. He recognizes her darker hair and basically she is trying to flirt with some guy on the casino floor in order to get to his room. Because in the room, there's no surveillance cameras. There's no people Mm -hmm. looking for her. She can kind of lay low until all this blows over. She manages to hit on the guy enough. They go up to his room. But in the meantime, Nick Cage has spotted her. And Nick Cage is trying to follow her up to the room. And Gary Sinise has spotted her. And Gary Sinise is trying to follow her up to the room. Now, advantage, Gary Sinise. Because he spots her first and manages to get into the elevator with her and this guy. So he's got the floor that she's on. Nick Cage, on the other hand, has security working to help him out. They get the guy's name and get not only the floor, but the room number. Exactly. So she and and the the larger guy from the bar go to the room. He attempts to, like, get what he thinks is coming, obviously, based yeah. on her hitting on him. And she's like, no, I just got to lay low here for a little while. I just need stuff to blow over. He's like, absolutely not. You're getting out. 
And in the process of throwing her out of the room, Nick Cage walks by, grabs her, and tells him to take a hike. Now, this is yes. where I'm this is where bad editing comes in. He kicks him out of the room. Nick Cage kicks the guy out of the room. And then in the next scene, they're walking down the staircase and they have their conversation in the staircase. And I don't know if you picked up on that, but there was no there's no reason for them to leave the room at this point. They yeah. Could have just hung out there, but that's neither here nor there. Gary Sinise, or they could have just left. They could have just left. Yeah, that would have been. If they were sense. just going to the stairs anyway. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. So you just brought it up. That that that's right. Because when they get back, when Gary, when they get back there, they're gone. And then they were. That's yeah. That's dumb. Yeah. So the guy, the guy goes to go, go tell hotel security that he just kicked out of his room, and he bumps into Gary Sinise, who's like, "Yeah, show me the room." While this is happening, Nick Cage and the girl, uh, Carla Gugino, I'm totally, am I butchering that? Gugino? Gugino, Gugino. Gugino. You're right. Okay, we'll go with that. Yeah, you're right. So they they cozy up in the stairwell, and she tells him her side of the story, which is basically that she works at the Secretary of Defense. uh, She works at this, this government contract building, and they're doing weapons testing. And she has proof that somebody is doctoring the tests in order to get this weapon approved and purchased by the U.S. military. She reached out to the Secretary of Defense to tell him about it. And he basically says, meet me up here with your proof and we'll talk. So she shows up. She waits for there to be an opening, which is Gary Sinise's character leaving this, his seat. She swoops in, shows him the doctored images and says, you know, we've got to put a stop to this. We've got to do something about this. Uh, and then that's when the gunshots rang out and she takes off. She says that before she sat down in the seat, she saw the hallway by where the shooter was and who was in the hallway talking to the shooter and to the redhead and yep. explains that it was Gary Sinise's character. So this is the first time where Nick Cade is not presented with the fact of Here's an eyewitness that has no idea your connection to Gary Sinise and is explaining that he is in on this. Yes. Give me your reaction to Nick Cage's response to this information. So not only was his response in disbelief, but I think what was what was crazy was his response of I didn't need to know this. I wish I didn't know this. I didn't want to know this, you know, and, and was blaming her was accusatory. What were you doing? Poking your nose in there. You shouldn't have been doing that. God, I didn't want to know. Like, I don't want to know this. And to me, all I kept thinking about was the opening scene. She's talking about how it is a hurricane and nobody wants to know that they want to know it as a tropical storm. So they're not afraid and that is what was ringing in my head. This was the theme of the whole movie. And now we're at the point where it really matters to the relationships of the main characters. And I, I love that build up all the way from that opening scene to here where this movie is about truth. And, and do you really want to know it? Do you right. really want to know? And it was more his his response was more disgusted that he had to be put in this position. He wasn't this hero that was like, well, then we're going to go save the day. <laughs> it was I don't want I don't want to know this. And what's, to me, that was incredible. What's great about this scene is there is two two perfect lines. 
Nick Cage says to her, you know, I, I didn't want to know this. Why, why did you have to tell me? And her, her response is something along the lines of like, what's the problem? What's the issue? And he says, either way I look, I have to do something I don't want to do. Because he knows I, I either, I either am the good guy and turn my friend in my best friend, mm-hmm. or I don't turn him in and I'm a bad guy. And I think this is really where it's like, he doesn't want to, he doesn't see himself as a bad guy. He sees himself as, as breaking a couple rules, but at yeah. the end of the day, he doesn't see himself as a bad guy, which is crazy to me. But yeah. the other great line in this is she makes the comment to, to Nick Cage. I was careful. I, I used a, a fake email address when I contacted him and Nick Cage says, you sat down right where they wanted you to. They didn't miss him with that second shot. They missed you. Yeah. And she has this moment of like, I, she even says, I thought I would get fired. I didn't think I'd get killed. Yep. Like she did not realize what she was getting herself into. And I, this is just, this is to me, one of the best scenes in the movie. It, it absolutely. And it is the pinnacle scene of the entire movie. I think it is, it's the, um, it's a focal point, if you will, because it really, you know, questions are quote unquote, I will just say who we're presented at as the hero, you know, and the choice that he has to make at that point. And, you know, either one is ugly. I'm going to have to shoot this woman that's sitting next to me. <laughs> who's trying, who's trying to do the right thing. Or I, I, you know, I have to turn in my best friend. And like I said, I mean, all I kept thinking about was that tropical storm conversation in the beginning. You know, people don't want the truth all the time. They don't. And he went, when he was presented with it, he was disgusted by it. Yeah. So uh, part of the evidence he's managed to gather during this the movie is that he has a recording of the heavyweight boxer uh, from like an above camera. And he's, he's, it's the, the big blow that got the crowd all crazy. And you can see that the other boxer missed, uh, mm-hmm. created that phantom punch, if you will. Um, so he goes back to the recording booth to see that. Uh, in addition, he checks the footage of this floating blimp that had a camera built into it that apparently nobody knew was going to be active that night. And he manages to get the images of Gary Sinise's character talking with the shooter prior to the events of you know what had unfolded. And this is really the proof. This is this is you know the you cannot deny what is happening right here. And in this scene, Gary Sinise shows up and he mm-hmm. basically tells him his his point of view, his story, which is more or less I this was gonna happen tonight. It's part of the reason why I brought you here. I needed a local cop to back up my story. And I knew that if things went bad, you could be bought. And th- he basically tells him, now's, now's your chance. You have hit the mother load. He offers him a million dollars to yep. just walk away from this. Tell me where the girl is and walk away. And he has this kind of emotional, like it's a good, it's a solid 30 to 45 seconds where he's just kind of staring at the ground. He's pulling out a cigarette. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And he sees this bloody $100 bill on the ground. This has been kind of circulating throughout the movie mm-hmm. this whole time. And I have, to me, it's pretty obvious. But I've, I've talked to other people who have seen this movie. What do you think is going through his head 
when he's staring at this bloody hundred dollar bill and and his his response to Gary Sinise, what do what do you think the wheels are saying right now in his head? First of all, are you have you ever been a smoker? Were you ever yes. a smoker? Okay. So to me, that was the most perfect time to smoke a cigarette. The first thing I thought of was, oh my God, that's literally what I would have done if I was still a smoker, like with this decision, (laughs) you know? And I think looking at that bloody hundred dollar bill, I mean, you know, where, how that's traveled through the movie, I think gave him that moment of pause to kind of almost check himself like, okay, so I beat the crap out of that dude, you know, in the beginning and stomped on his drugs. I stole his money. I, you know, I did all these things throughout this night, you know, are these things a reflection of me? You know, do I have a chance to do the right thing here because I'm the guy who already thinks he's the good guy anyway. Now I have a chance to actually prove that. I, I think that I think that money I think that bloody hundred dollar bill was his reflect was was a not his reflection like a mirror like his time to reflect that's yeah. what I think I I agree but I'll take it one step further I think he he's going through all the stuff he's done you know even even stuff prior to the movie stuff that you know we did, we didn't see on camera sure and he's looking at that hundred and he's thinking about that million and he's thinking the million is blood money. Mm. It's blood money from the, the bloody hundred. It's blood money. I like and that. That's, and what he says out loud, his next line out loud is I've never killed anybody. Yeah. Meaning like I've done some fucked up shit. I am not a good cop and maybe I'm not a good guy, but this is the line. This is the line yeah. I've never crossed. I've never killed anybody. I've never taken blood money and basically tells Gary Sinise. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't be your fall guy. Yeah, it, And at which point Gary Sinise is like, okay. And then this is, again, this going back to that, that scene where he, Gary Sinise kills his two buddies. This is where Gary Sinise separates from Nick Cage and says, you got the line. I don't. I, I killed two other soldiers tonight that were on my team. And you as my best friend, I'll do what, what I got to do with you too. And the heavyweight boxer comes down the stairs. And you can see that. He doesn't really want to do this, but you know he's in now too far over his head. And the the scene cuts to them on the pier or, or in some sort of like storage warehouse thing that you. you well, know, they're doing construction. Right, right, because they're going to redo this this uh, you know uh, event center. So the boxer is literally beating the shit out of Nick Cage, and Gary Sinise is telling him like, "You tell me where the girl is." Tell me where the girl is. You're not cut out for this. You're not cut out to be the good guy. You know, do you, he even tells him like when this hits the news, you know, they're going to dig up dirt on you. You're going to lose your wife. You're going to lose your girlfriend. You're going to lose your job. You're going to go to jail. Like you're not cut out to be the good guy. Just do what you've always done. Lay over, take the money. And he does it. He, he continues to get the shit kicked out of him. Uh, until what he's did not the boxer out. say? Because the boxer gave him, did you could tell he didn't want to be there. He like told him, "Just shut up, man." Yeah. Or just tell him, man. He's like, because like, he was go t- easy on you. Yeah, like I'm just t- like he he was like trying to like help him. <laughs> and Nick Cage is heckling him the whole time. Yeah, like, that's all like, a punch. Yeah, and just as he's just be and his eye is all distended. Oh, yeah, it's, it's uh, awesome. it was it was gross. Like that was pretty gross. So when Nick Cage gets knocked out, Gary Sinise puts a tracker on him 
uh, which is smart, knowing that when he wakes up, the first thing he's going to do is go find that chick, uh, which he's kind of stashed out in this little closet thing, if you will. Um, and he does. He wakes up. He goes to, uh, to the girl. Gary Sinise follows him. And at this point, the, the storm has knocked off this giant like globe that was on top of this event center. The reporter's back outside trying to get some good camera angles you know, with the storm and the globe. And you got everything coming to a head. The, the storm is outside hitting its peak. Nick Cage and Gary Sinise are having this kind of standoff outside the room with the chicken side of it. This ambulance comes pulling up and the globe starts rolling down the street, causes the ambulance to turn and swerve. They swerve into this closet part of the building and the news crews there, the cops, the, was it, was it the ambulance drivers who have no cops, the cop, the cops were on their way. That's what because, it was. And, and already, and the ambulance swerved, but it was the cop car that went through. That's right. The building. And the cops show up to Gary Sinise with his gun drawn. Uh, I, I believe he's already taken a shot as well. Um, he's got a silencer and, on the gun, which is never a good sign. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the cops basically yell at him, put it down, put put the gun down. And he turns to Nick and he says, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm doing this investigation. She's a witness. Nick, tell him, tell him. And that's when Nick Cage utters a great line. Uh, you got snake eyes. Because uh, you got you to gotta work the title of the movie into oh, a line, course. right? Like, you, you have, have to. to. Do you the watch 90s. Barry? Do you watch the, the, the TV show Barry on HBO? I I don't, but I should. I absolutely so love... Yeah, I should, be, I should be watching that. There's a there's a great scene where he's talking to his agent, and he's telling him how he got a part in the, in an upcoming TV show, or upcoming movie. And he's, like, going through his lines, and he goes, wait. You say the name of the movie. They can't cut that. You're going to be in the movie. It's great. <laughs> uh, but that's it. Gary Sinise ends up shooting himself uh, to get out of it. And that's really the end of the movie. Now, they do have this last kind of, you know, three or four Epilogue. minutes. Yeah. Where you see that first Nick Cage gets this awesome award for, for doing all this great stuff. Then they start doing some investigation. It's almost like a time lapse over what you know could probably be three to six months. They do an investigation on him. He gets you know uh, uh, arrested or indicted. His his girlfriend and wife both leave, and he's just having a really shitty uh, situation now. And then he has this last final scene where he meets up with um, what uh, what's her face's character, Carla Gugino's character. There, there you go. I'm horrible at names. And uh, they have you know a couple nice things to say to each other on the pier before the movie cuts the credits and that's it it rolls. So I mean, before before we answer the question of whether this is a good movie or not, let's let's go into our questions. Yes. So I got three questions that I've developed that I think are the epitome of film in their entirety. I mean, I've, I have managed to spend 80 to a hundred hours crafting these questions so that they hit on every single part of a movie. Not to, not to sound big on myself at all. No, um, not at all. <laughs> so let's start with question number one. What was the message of the film and do you agree with it? Ooh, 
I like that question. The, the message, I think, is that you know nobody nobody really wants the truth. Everybody wants a wants a veneer. Everybody wants a you know uh, they want it to be happy happily ever after. They want a Disney movie. They don't want what the truth is because the truth is ugly. Um, and then, did I agree with the message? I mean, yeah, I, I agree that that is how our world works. They want this, you know, they want a, a, a cookie cutter, sugar coated. They want sprinkles on their turds, man. <laughs> well, this whole movie is that, you know, well put. So I, I just because of, of who you are as my guest, I've got to put a little political spin on this. To me, the message of the film is more uh, centered around Nick Cage's character and mm-hmm. the idea that bad Guys can do good things and good guys can do bad things. Cause I think that's, that's Nick cage and that's Gary Sinise, right? I mean, he's the bad guy who eventually goes on to do the good thing. And Gary Sinise is this Naval officer. Who's the good guy, but is doing bad things. And I think in the world that we have today of, of cancer, a uh, cancel culture and, you know, everybody's guilty until proven innocent. The, you can't have, I mean, it's that famous line, right? That JFK and and Ronald Reagan would never get elected in today's political atmosphere. That some of our great leaders would never, you know, get elected uh, if you only got one strike. And then you have, you know, people like Trump who got a million and a half strikes and somehow still made it. So I think it's important that people understand that just because somebody does one bad thing doesn't make them a bad person. And just because one person, you know, poses for one charity photo op doesn't make them a good person. Yeah, that's actually a really good point, um, and I can definitely agree with that as a major theme of this movie, absolutely. I mean, if not the main theme of the movie, uh, I could definitely agree with that. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, I think this movie was great in the political climate, and I think that cancel culture and what happened to him at the end of this movie, <laughs> how he was dragged under, and and also how ironic it was that everything Gary Sinise said was going to happen literally happened, right. but... Um, you know, that spoke to me, that epilogue spoke to me with, that's where we are in our world today is we have this person that's a hero. And the first thing we do is we look at, we look at their rap sheet and see every, instead of focusing on the one thing that they just did, it's, we're, we're looking at all their skeletons, you know, but at the same time, you got the bad person who does a bad thing, you know, one bad thing. And we don't look at all the good that they've done. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, man, that makes a lot of sense. I agree with you there. Okay, question number two. How did the movie leave you feeling, and do you think it was intentional? Um, the movie left me feeling... I don't even know how to put it. Like, I was... I know this sounds cliche. Satisfied. I don't even know, like... there. I, I didn't jump up and say, that's the greatest movie I ever saw. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't go, this movie sucked. Because it didn't. This, this was a a good this was a standard 90s film do you know what i mean like it just it was just it's it's just a standard 90s it's there with face off which we brought up before it's there with what like the mummy with brendan fraser right it's there they're just they're these 90s that came out late 90s you knew what you were gonna get and it was just you knew it was going to be enjoyable i was satisfied it was like i ate a meal of food and i was the perfect amount of full it's, and it's, I oh, think go that's ahead. What they, no, I just want to say, I think, I think that's what they wanted. Absolutely. Or, I, I don't think we get this in Hollywood anymore. I mean, I think 
we in definitely in the nineties and even in the early two thousands, we got really good movies. That was the bulk of what we got in, in theaters mm-hmm. were really good movies. Maybe if you cross your fingers and wrote enough letters, it might get a sequel eventually. And, you know, once or twice a year, you get this monumental blockbuster um, that everybody's been looking forward to. You like a, a new star Wars comes out or something like that. Yeah. But nowadays everything has to be a blockbuster. Everything is being set up for a six movie deal. It's just yep. insane. Not that I'm opposed to it. I mean, I love the Marvel movies. We've got some great content coming out, hopefully here in the next couple of years, post COVID. But part of me does kind of miss the $50 million, you know, no sequel plan type movies. Yes. Yes, dude. Uh, I, I'm so glad you're saying this because I feel the same way. That was such a golden, to me, a golden age of movies where you could go to the movie theater and the marquee, everything on the marquee was good. Mm-hmm. It was good. But you had like one super, blo- like you said, one super blockbuster film. I already saw that. All right. right. Well, this is <laughs> Along Came a Spider with Morgan Freeman and um, Angelina. Was it Angelina Jolie? No, it was. Um, 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 oh, God. What's her name? I'm Look gonna it up. It. I'm going to find it. Because she's a great actress, too. Uh, Monica Potter, it's saying, but it's not her. Are you thinking of Kiss the Girl? That's it. Kiss the Girl. I'm sorry. Yeah, because that's got who I think you're thinking of. Yeah, no, you're right. Wow. Ashley Judd. Ashley Ashley Judd. Judd, That's it. But what I'm saying is, like, you had these movies that were just, like, standard state. You could go to the movie theater and you could say, I don't know what I want to watch. But you could get there, look at the marquee, and say... Yeah, any whatever. of these yeah, and it, that that was early 2000 late 90s mid 90s even you know now just like you said that's that's a very good point like we just don't everything is a marvel you know 17 pictures star wars a tv show a book series and a movie and you know it, it's everything is is there's just so much of it there's there's no standard filmmakers anymore right like you said the 50 million dollar film that's just good i just want it to be good <laughs> exactly exactly um okay so uh, question number three our last question what is the most important sequence in the movie oh god um there's there's two that's i mean i'd say the most i'd say the most important would be the scene in the in the security room when Gary Sinise comes in there, like we had discussed mm-hmm. with the with the bloody hundred dollar bill. I'm not just saying just the bloody hundred dollar bill portion. I'm saying that entire sequence right. from beginning from beginning to end because that's a tough conversation that we knew was coming, mm-hmm. and we finally got the line drawn in the sand. We we were told what Nick Cage's character was going to do what his choice was. I, mm-hmm. I'd say that's the most important sequence. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's tough because in a movie that's really centered around that one scene, you know, where the, the events take place, um, there, there are quite a few important sequences. That one, like we talked about the conversation on the stairs, um, but I'm with you. I think that final, that final kind of cliff moment where he's having the conversation with his best friend to basically say, no, I'm not in on this. And, uh, you know, I'm going to turn you in that that's got to be the most important sequence. 
Absolutely. I mean, you could you, there an argue I'd say an argument could be made for the opening sequence with uh not the one with the the hurricane, the one right after with Nicolas Cage, that one long sequence that we had talked right. about. Um because that was one of the best shorthand character development scenes I've seen in any movie. Mhm. Which is great because, and that's, that's again, a, a big kudos to, to Brian De Palma because you do have what on the surface is a short scene with a lot of character development, but because you revisit that scene so many times from different angles, you're just going back to develop that character more and more and more because you're going to see something this time that you didn't see that last time that adds to it. Uh, it's so good. So, I mean, so let, this is it. This is the question. Rocco. 1998's Snake Eyes. Was it a good movie? Yes, yes, it was. Absolutely. I'm, I feel vindicated now. <laughs> I love this movie. I love this movie so much. It's going into my top 10. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, check out my YouTube channel. I go over my top 10 movies that we've covered in the podcast. And for this, I, I have to bump Draft Day, uh, which was number 10, and is now going to fall off the list. And I'm put, putting Snake Eyes all the way up at number five. So it's bumping everything else down. To me, again, is this a blockbuster, wow. amazing movie? No, but it's a, an amazing noir film that takes a lot of really cool uh, director and writer type changes. It, it's it's things that I've seen in this movie that I didn't see before and, and really struggle to see since. No, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think I said, because I watched this with my wife, I think I said multiple times they don't make movies like this anymore. Like... They just don't. We don't see these. This was a gem. This was an absolute gem of a movie. Um, and thanks for for letting me revisit that again. I'd say <laughs> absolutely. So the movie does a hundred and three point nine million on a sixty eight million dollar budget. It doesn't quite double its budget, which we know is kind of the cutoff mark for being, um, mm-hmm. you know, a successful movie. It's it's really not critically accepted very well. Um, So there are some subtle hints going into our last game called Guess That Tomato. So I don't know if you're familiar with Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes is a 0 to 100 score on pretty much every movie that they ever had. Um, There's also a critic score and an audience score. So what I'm going to have you do is give me your guess as to what you think the audience score is for this movie. And then I'm going to give you some hints and I'm going to give you a chance to change your guess if you want to, and then we'll see how close you get. So for 1998's Snake Eyes, what is your score? Zero to a hundred. For audience score. Not, audience score. Not critic. Okay. Audience score, I would say 76. 76. Good guess. Okay. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the critic score. And I'm also going to give you three movies that are plus or minus 2% of the audience score for Snake Eyes. So the critic score, 66 critics give this movie a 41. And your three movies that are within 2%, starting with movie number one, Shaft. Samuel L. Jackson's 2019 film where he plays his motherfucking self. Movie number two, Six Underground. The film that answers the question, what would happen if Michael Bay tried to make a Michael Bay film? <laughs> I love and, that. And movie number three, A Million Ways to Die in the West. A film whose funniest joke 
is Charlie Steron being interested in Seth MacFarlane? Wow. Okay, so those those comments were those audience? <laughs> those were all audience comments, or those? Are those critics? are all comments I just made up for the films. Okay. Oh, okay. So I see what you're saying. Um, okay, so I'm gonna. Hmm. Have you seen any of those movies? We got Shafts, yes. Six Underground, and A Million Ways to Die in the West. I've seen them all. Are you? I haven't seen Shaft. Really? With Sam Jackson? The With remake? Sam Jackson. Yeah, is it good? Oh, Isn't it like set up for his son or something? I mean, yeah, it, it was all right. I don't know. I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to lower my score a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but not by much. But not by much. I'm going to say 71. 71. The audience score for 1998's mystery and thriller Snake Eyes is 35. Wow. 50,000 ratings. 35. The audience score, I find, is always typically higher. Now, I knew the critic score. I knew, I I remembered that because I I saw that last night, but I didn't look at the audience score, obviously. It's crazy. (laughs) 35 is way too low. Again, this isn't a blockbuster, but this is a good movie. I usually the usually the audiences are nicer than the critics. So so here's uh-huh. we got one one positive reviewer said it's immediately impossible to mistake Snake Eyes for anything than a vintage De Palma thriller. The film echoes the technical wizardry and complex plotting of a De Palma. Great great review. Yeah. One one negative review Brian De Palma's exercise in flashy paranoia and shallow cynicism comes out of the gate with gangbusters, but falls apart in a flurry of preposterous plotting. Okay, so that's a cop lover right there that wrote that. <laughs> uh, uh, like uh, that—that's a dude. That dude that wrote that has a back the blue sticker on the back of his truck. Let me see the name of that critic. It is um, somebody by the name of Nicholas Cage. It looks like he wrote that about himself. He's crazy. So some of the research I had to do for this film, I watched, I don't know if you're familiar, GQ has a series of interviews they have on YouTube where they they talk to actors about some of their famous roles. Sure. Nick Nick Cage was on there. Um, A popular fact about Nick Cage, you know he's a, a, a Coppola? Uh, I did not know that. Yeah, so Nick Cage is not actually his real name. It's a stage name. His real name um, is, I don't know, something Coppola. He's like a wow. second cousin to Francis Ford Coppola. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. But um, he is on camera doing this interview, and he's got a white leather jacket on. His hair is so blatantly dyed like a dark black. Like... Listen, guys get older, they get gray, whatever. Sure. I don't judge. You want to dye your hair, that's fine too. But this is like jet black. This is like no young person has hair this black. What year was this interview? Uh, two or three years ago. If oh, not. okay, okay, wow. But what's what's more interesting is he's wearing two rings on his pinky and ring finger of his left hand. The one on his pinky is probably an inch in diameter, clear diamond. It is enormous. And the ring immediately next to it is about twice the size and is a purple gem. So 
he, not only does he have these two unbelievably gaudy rings, but he put them like next to each other. You you can't possibly make a fist with two golf ball sized rings on fingers that are next to each other. That's insanity. It's this is one of those OCD things of me. Like I I don't care that you're wearing the rings. Express yourself however you want to. But it bothers me that you put them on fingers next to each other. Put one on each hand. Spread them out a little bit. But why do you? Why does he even have them? I, I like. <laughs> but why do? <laughs> why do you have these rings? What is this is that, for? Is that the bad part though? Like that wasn't my first reaction. Wasn't you know why are you wearing ridiculous jewelry? My first reaction was he's crazy because he hasn't separated them. <laughs> well, no, it's not bad. It's it, obviously it's I don't, dude. Why? I just I want to know why. I wish the interviewer would. Have, if I was the interviewer, I would just be like, what is that? <laughs> Just what is that? Like, can just, we just talk about that for a minute? <laughs> you can't expect me not to talk about that. Yeah. You showed up wearing that. We got to bring it up. Oh, that's um, wild. Rocco, thank you so much for being my guest. T- tell the folks, where can they get more of you if they want to hear your pretty voice again? Oh, thank you. Um, first of all, thanks for be- uh, for letting me be here. I enjoyed that very Absolutely, much. Man. And I'd love to come back and talk movies anytime. Um, but... I am on a little show called Critical Mass, the Critical Mass podcast. Um, as we're part of the DFAT family with you guys, Aww. and uh, no one should listen to our show. It's awful. <laughs> it's, it's that is awful. not true. Not um, true. I am a hardcore fan. These guys are hilarious. You and Dan, you guys are just <laughs> crack me up the entire time I'm listening. It's great. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, we love what we do. We've been a podcast for a while. Uh, if you like social and political commentary where we just pretty much skewer everyone involved, um, you should give us a list. So definitely. Absolutely. Um, so before I let you go, we got one last thing. It's a firm believer of the owners. Don't forget a towel that everybody geeks out on something while it may not be movies and comic books. Maybe it's gambling and, you know, plotting conspiracy assassinations so i gotta ask you rocco what is it you're currently geeking out on currently oh my god what am i geeking out on currently um i'd say do 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 comics uh comic books uh i'm really really into um what am I reading right? Well, anything Batman, anything Batman related, I am consuming comic book wise, um, picking up either old trades to like get uh, get more stories or just following the current um, Batman and Bat family. So I've been collecting all the new comics. Anything that has to do with Gotham City is in my bag and I'm constantly reading it. Um, so, yeah, that's where I'm geeking out on right now, man, is just comics. What are you? What's your take on the next Batman? I, I just got the fifth issue of that, or the fourth issue, or something. What yeah. are, you, are you reading it? Yeah. So uh, was that as the well the next Batman? So the fourth one would be part of Future State, right? Right. Yep. Exactly. That's the one. Okay. So um, I love it. Uh, we we just actually did a podcast uh that'll be airing soon um about that, but. Uh, I love it. I really do love it. I love the direction. And this was my biggest thing is a lot of people obviously had a problem that Batman is now black. And which is, can we just stop this? Can we just like, I'm just so tired of hearing people that have a problem with 
oh, Spider-Man's, you know, black now and I it sucks. And uh, Batwoman's a lesbian and that's stupid. It's like, do we really care about this anymore? Like, is this well, really it, something that we voice our opinions on? I, I agree with you 100 percent. And and people need to understand, like, Bruce Wayne isn't black. They were the character remains. This is a brand new character. And what's beautiful is he had a great story that I loved and he wasn't shoehorned in. It wasn't like DC said, okay, we're going to have to make Batman black now to be PC. It's no, we have this interesting character who comes from an interesting family who has an interesting story that I want to read and want to know more of. And he just happens to be black. Yeah, that's that's how I'm reading it. And it's he's coming back out in what's going to be called Batman the Second Son, which is going to continue that story. Um, and I've already got it pre-ordered. Nice, man. Uh, I, I, too, am geeking out. I just picked up uh, the second issue of The Last Ronin. I haven't read it yet. Arguably one of the best Ninja Turtle titles we've had uh, probably ever. Um, but definitely as of recent times. And then as some uh, podcast listeners may remember, I'm still geeking out on uh, the Maestro Hulk, which is, again, probably one of the best Hulk titles we've had in a long time. Um, pretty badass future state type Hulk. He's you know, even more crazy than he normally is. What I like about his character is that he definitely, at least in this series, is really the anti-hero. Um, mm-hmm. he's, not, he's not a great guy, uh, but you're, for some reason, rooting for him. Right on, yeah, man. That's um. Let's see. That's Marvel. So Marvel wise, I'm reading Iron Man right now. Iron Man and Daredevil. Um, that's what I'm up on as of currently. Daredevil being, um, tied for my favorite superhero with Batman. So really, yes. What 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 about Daredevil makes him one of your favorites? I mean, cause he's not. He's a. I, I like Daredevil. He's a great superhero. But when you talk to people about their favorites, you don't find him on the list very often. Um. I I became obsessed with him at a very young age when uh, he was guest starring on the Spider-Man cartoon show, that 90s Spider-Man cartoon show. Yeah, and absolutely. then I just I started like eating up all anything I could find that's Daredevil. I, I grew up in the old Frank Miller Daredevil mm-hmm. comics, um, which are definitely very I should not have been reading them when I was reading them, but my, <laughs> my parents didn't really know. Um, but again, I would read that. Um, what I loved is that he, he battled with his faith constantly and he was a devout, um, Irish Catholic, which is pretty much the same thing as Roman Catholic, which is, it's actually is exactly the same thing as being Roman Catholic, which is how I was raised. And I struggled with my faith my entire life. And to see someone in comics, Matt Murdock, struggling with the ex- not just his religion, but the exact same religion as my as my family's, <laughs> really drew me to that. Um, he felt truly that the the battle between heaven and hell was happening inside of him, and so that violent portion of him that needed to get out was out on the faces. Uh, as he would beat them in <laughs> of criminals, and his his angel was the fact that he didn't kill them. Yeah. Um, he had a no killing policy. Um, so yeah, I mean, really, really good. I, I, I just love, that's what I loved about him. I love that superhero. So, uh, okay. One last question before I let you go. Cause I could talk about this for hours, but what Please. are your thoughts on the Netflix daredevil and the possible Disney bringing it back? So I, I get asked this a lot because a lot of my friends know how big of a fan I am of daredevil. And they also know that I lauded, that show 
as the second coming of Christ for me. <laughs> like that show, um, I cried. I uh, Charlie Cox is Matt Murdock. Charlie Cox is Daredevil. Um, and what they did in that show was stunning. Um, I mean, not but, but yeah, it was pretty good. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's. I remember walking out of that theater as a young person, just being like, "What just happened to me?" <laughs> like, I just sat there and let that happen to me. Like, as a Daredevil I, fan, I thought it was very courageous for him to play a character that made you want to be blind, so that you wouldn't have to watch him play that character. <laughs> That's so true. It's so sad. Um, no, but yeah, I mean, I, that was a concern hearing that Daredevil was coming to Netflix was, is this going to be campy? And no, they made it really dark. Uh, it mirrored a lot of what the comics currently, at least in my opinion, currently are. When that show was canceled, after setting up uh, you know, his his arch nemesis bullseye, like they literally set up his his arch nemesis <laughs> and then cancel the show. Um so with him being brought back, um he needs to be brought back as Peter Parker's Peter Parker's attorney. That's yeah, what I cool. want to see. And I want to see Charlie Cox show up as his attorney. And and that is how the two of them met. And I want to see that on the big screen. And I'm sorry, but I want to see Charlie Cox doing it. Will it happen? Right. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's that's honestly one of my one of the things I love about Daredevil that is kind of bothersome to me about Batman is I think Batman writers have a tendency of getting too big um, with the, yeah. with the dark multiverse and you know, it's not even him yes. saving Gotham anymore. Now he's saving full universes. Uh, but daredevil, at, at least in the titles I've read has always kind of stayed, you know, hell's kitchens protector. And yeah, they keep you just as engaged with, you know, him protecting the neighborhood. And I think if Batman went more towards the noir saving Gotham, you know, crime solving comic books uh, of the old, it would, to me, it would suck in, you know, more fans. You don't need to have the entire universe at stake every time. No, and it's funny you say that because I'm the one who says that typically to our group of friends that we all talk to that are always like, oh, you got to read Death Metal and you got to read this else ver other verse. And I'm like, no, I want a street level superhero. That's what Batman is. That's what Daredevil right. is. And I got nervous with the new Daredevil titles because they were doing a crossover with King and Black. I don't know if you've heard of King yep. and Black. Mm -hmm. So they did a crossover, and when you're when you're doing a crossover with King and Black, and you know it's Venom, you know that okay. So what now? Daredevil's gonna get the Venom suit, and this is gonna turn into something that I don't want to read. I want a street level superhero, and how they did it was so freaking well done that it kept him there at that level, but he still got to experience the whole Venom outbreak, mm -hmm. and it was awesome. And they they did it in one issue, and they stopped touching it. Yeah, it's great. It's great, and that's honestly that's the only thing that's got me even a little excited for the Robert Pattinson Batman is that everything I'm hearing is that they're keeping it lower and making it more of a you know world's greatest detective type take versus you know universe impending you know goblins. Dude, I want to see seven, but Batman. Absolutely, absolutely. 100%. That's what well, I'm very well. Put. That's what I want to see. 
Thank you. That's what I want to see. That's what I should see. That's right. what Batman is. Absolutely. That it's, you know, it's ugly. I want it to be ugly. I want it to be dirty. I want it to be, you know, I don't want him in a spaceship. I want him, you know, so, beating I the... Mean, yeah. Coming coming to a Kickstarter near you, I will be the first pledge. Absolutely. Rocco, thank you so much for being my guest. I really appreciate it. <gasps> Love being here, man. Thanks for having me. Take care. Later, dude. got gutsy media podcast leave a message about any movies you've covered and maybe we'll add to the show thanks every time i watch a nick cage movie i feel as though i'm rolling the dice and oftentimes i'm going to get snake eyes and when i watch this stupid movie with nick cage called snake eyes i know that i've rolled a snake eyes in life it is one of his worst movies but also happens to be in the top five of his best movies because he continually makes shit movies and in this particular one he dragged down the saint gary sinise down 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 to a terrible movie that doesn't belong anywhere on blu-ray it doesn't belong on on 4k this thing needs to die on dvd and not be upgraded anymore nick cage classic classic nick cage did not prepare for this movie he just goes scene by scene, acting like Nick Cage for no damn reason. There's plot holes. There are stupid things like the weather. Uh, they try to make it good, and they miss the mark. Snake Eyes is exactly the house that the house wins if you watch it. Nick Cage's bankroll gets a little bit fatter. Uh, it's just a terrible movie all the way through. Don't waste your time. In fact, don't even listen to this podcast. Turn this podcast off right now. That's how terrible it is. Also, end your life. Goodbye.